0: Okay, good to see you. I have the feeling of coming into church and preaching this morning. That feels pretty good as well. Um, a <laughs> couple of uh, housekeeping notes for you. Um, this message this morning has a long intro. Um, so uh, don't feel that we've got so far off the page that we're not going to actually read God's word. But we are going to spend kind of 15 minutes, I think, just setting the table for our passage today. So don't be alarmed. Um, Also, the way that we're going to run this thing at the end of our uh, gathering here this morning, at the end of the message, we're just going to flow straight into our reflection time, straight into time to think about what it is that God's saying to us through his word. Uh, Greg and the band will then come back and we'll have some music, Um, but we're not going to go into our kind of normal uh, worship set after the message, so uh, that's the way we're going to play things. So, everyone cool with that? Sound good? Okay, let's go. So I wonder how you're doing with our Matthew series here. It's been interesting for me. I I had the privilege of just being a, um, uh, uh, just doing what Ruthie and I always used to do, sitting together in church, hearing Rod speak two weeks ago over on the east side. And I think a penny really dropped for me during that message about Matthew's gospel um, from uh, Matthew 20. Uh, You might remember the stark contrast that Rod drew out of that text uh, between two requests. That Jesus receives as he's making his way up to Jerusalem for the final time with this huge crowd of people following him. First, we get the request from Jesus's two disciples, James and John. Remember, they want the honor of sitting next to Jesus on his left and his right when he enters his glory. And then we've got, uh, right after that, the request from these two blind men uh, who are sitting by the side of the road in Jericho uh, who call out to Jesus, Son of David. Have mercy on us. We want to see. Now, I don't know about you, but when I heard that message, I just felt convicted again by my seemingly bottomless capacity to forget what the kingdom of Jesus is all about. I know that the kingdom is not about people who want to be great. It's about people who are willing to be small so that Jesus can be great. And yet in my heart... I see a continual tendency to drift away from those moorings. Anybody else like that? Yeah. Jesus himself models the way that we're supposed to walk, doesn't he? If you just kind of step back from these chapters we're in at the moment and watch where he's going, resolutely marching towards the cross, you can't help see how success in God's kingdom just completely subverts Uh, the idea of success that we breathe in from the world all around us and that we breathe out from uh, our hearts. We think that uh, what it takes to live well is to make an impact. We think the way to live well is to fulfill our dreams. We think the way to live well is to satisfy our appetites, to do something big, to do something lasting, to be appreciated, to be remembered. But the cross just blows all of that out of the water, doesn't it? Do you remember how Rod put it? The cross reduces uh, the resume that I carry through life to just two bullet points. I'm going to stick them up on the screen here. We'll have these with us as we go through our message. There we go. Can you see that? The cross tells me the true measure of my debt and it tells me the true measure of God's love for me. And those two realities necessarily change my entire outlook in life, don't they, if I accept them? When my case and when your case is brought before the court at the end of time, with God sitting on the throne as we believe one day it will be, and when my thoughts and actions and motives are all exposed, and when the scale of the gratitude that I owe to God for all the good gifts that he gave me is revealed for my life for my health, for the gifts that I was born with, for the opportunities that I had to develop them, and for the opportunities I had to know him and his goodness and his kindness. When all of that is revealed and when it's held up against my response, my selfishness, my pride, my conviction that really it was all about me and that all the good things that I had pointed praise towards me, And that when any one of God's mercies was withdrawn from me, I was justified in shaking my fist at him and saying, God, you are so missing it. When that whole picture is revealed, it will be clear to everyone who's there to see it that the cross that Jesus carried is the cross I should have carried. The cross is the true measure of my debt. And if I accept that fact, my life is changed I've got no need of pride anymore, have I? Because I've got nothing to be proud of. I don't have to worry about being remembered anymore because I realize how much more important it is that the person that I was and the things that I did can be forgotten. The cross completely empties me of all the poison. On the cross, Jesus shows me that I am nothing in and of myself but then I see what an amazing rescue it is that God has planned. Because the cross doesn't just blow apart the armour that I used to defend myself from God, but it welcomes me back as a dearly loved child of God. On the cross, the debt that I owe is not just displayed, but paid. Jesus bore the full weight of the consequences of my sinful choices so that I might enjoy the full blessings of of the sonship that he deserved. Now there's no reason why it should have been that way, is there? Human judges show mercy every day to uh, people in parole cases, but they don't welcome them back into their own families. They leave them to try and make a new identity on their own. They send them out to try and rebuild uh, the threads of their lives as best they can. But not God. The cross doesn't just tell me the true measure of my debt, the cost... Cross tells me the true measure of God's love for me. And that sets me free, doesn't it, from the need to prove myself and win acceptance. If I'm single, I don't need to be married anymore in order to find an identity. If I'm childless, I don't have to have kids anymore in order to find an identity. If I'm unemployed, I don't have to find a job anymore to find an identity. If I'm an orso ran, I don't need to be a winner anymore in order to find an identity. If I'm plain, I don't need to be pretty anymore in order to find an identity. Because I'm a child of God and that is my identity. And nothing I can ever achieve or lose in this life will ever change that. The cross sets us free. But why is it then that I find it so easy to wander back into all the destructive nonsense that it sets me free from? Most of you know that Ruthie and me are uh, beginning to make plans now for our move back to England next year, where we're going to be part of this church plant in Oxford. It's very exciting, very daunting. But as I hold my thinking about that project uh, up to Jesus' perspective here in Matthew's Gospel, uh, I just wonder what on earth is wrong with me, to be honest. You know, as I stand under the shower in the morning with brain in neutral, uh, you know, just those thoughts that come sliding through your brain, I find myself wanting for that church to be big and that people will look at me and think that I'm doing a good job, uh, that it will last, that people will remember us for being involved at the start, that somehow I'll be able to win the respect and admiration of the students and the families that we'll be serving there. and whew, That just doesn't sound like the picture I've just laid out, does It, it doesn't sound... Uh, like jesus 's cross shaped perspective, it sounds like it 's all about me again. Do your thoughts about the future look anything like that? Honestly? Or well, maybe you have the same problem, just cut the other way around. Uh, perhaps you 're in a situation in life where you feel stuck. perhaps you 've got health issues, uh, perhaps you 're tied down by aging parents. Perhaps your high hopes for marriage or family have been disappointed. And perhaps that's dragging you down into despair because you can't find a way to control it and you feel worthless. I've been in that place too in my past and I found that uh, that was just as good a way to make things all about me as the other way. Neither of those two extremes, either self-aggrandizement or self-loathing, are really living in the light of this two-point resume, are they? So why do our hearts still go there? Why aren't our lives being set free by this cross-shaped perspective that Jesus puts in front of us here in Matthew's Gospel? Well, there are many answers to that question. First, and uh, I think some of us probably really need to hear this, the Bible doesn't teach us that we will see complete victory over sin in this life. Oh, we've lost our thing. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Technical issues. Try that, Ronnie. Woo! All right. That may happen again. Be warned. Yeah. The quote The Bible doesn't teach us that we will uh, get complete victory over sin in this life. God's Spirit in us is powerful enough to help us defeat specific sins. Uh, we can challenge greed in God's strength and win. We can challenge a hot temper in God's strength and win. We can challenge a homosexual lifestyle in God's strength and win. The Bible urges us to confront these things and put them to death. But that doesn't mean that we will ever be free from sin, the underlying condition. The underlying condition, the attitude of heart that continually wants to usurp God and to be in control, the belief that I know best, that is going to be with me until the day that I die. And so although it's possible to win specific battles along the way, the victory that God really wants us to win in this life is the victory of never giving up even when we fail. To fail, to admit our failure, and then to sorrowfully try again, again and again, that's the life that God knows is best for us on this side of heaven. That's victory over slavery to sin, because it continually rubs Satan's nose in the fact that we will not be bound by it anymore. We may stumble so many times that if our hope was really in ourselves, we would collapse in discouragement and say, oh, this is ridiculous, I can't do this. But because our hope is not in ourselves, we just get up and we dust ourselves down for the tenth or the hundredth or the thousandth time and turn around and say to Satan, we will not be dissuaded. It's kind of weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. So there are reasons why we shouldn't be surprised that our hearts still cough up all this garbage, aren't there? It doesn't mean that there's no hope for us. If we're still fighting, however many times we've been tipped over, there's still hope. But just because living with a cross-shaped perspective is always going to be a battle, and it is, that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do to make it easier. And that's what our sermon today is going to be about. You see, if you're where I am and you're frustrated that when you go away from church on a Sunday, you don't live in the light of this two-point resume that we've been working with, I think the text that we've got in front of us today in Matthew 22 can help us. Matthew 22 highlights four things that make living with a cross-shaped perspective uh, harder than it needs to be for us, things that we can actually get to grips with and try and root out of our lives. And it's my prayer that as we learn about them, And as we pray for God's help to challenge them, uh, that we'll find ourselves failing less often. So let's read it together. Stand with me. We're going to read Matthew 22. We'll just read the first 14 verses to start with. Okay, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. He sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and and calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. And the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is God's word. Let's. Take a seat here and pray. God, it's my heart's desire, and I guess that reflects the desire of many hearts here, uh, that I might walk more consistently in the light of who you are and what you've taught. I hate the fact that when I uh, go out, I have all of these worldly, me-centered thoughts raging through my head, even after all these years of following you. And God, I know that part of that is uh, just part of the territory But any of it that's not part of the territory, any of it uh, that can be uh, wrung out of me, God, I pray that you would wring it out of me. And we pray, Jesus, that uh, hearing what you have to teach us here might be just a significant step towards that in some of our lives. God, would you just really get into us and help us live the Christian life. Lord, help us uh, to walk as Jesus walked. We pray it for His great name's sake. Amen. All right, so let's get into this now. Um, We're going to be covering the first 33 verses of this chapter in our message, so uh, we just have the first uh, chunk of it here. Uh, It's a familiar parable, but let's uh, kind of work uh, at reorienting ourselves with it first just to see where it sits in the context. Last time out, you might remember with Westy, Uh, We have that amazing passage from Matthew 21 uh, where Jesus finally comes riding up the hill uh, into Jerusalem as prophet, priest and king. But you remember that that chapter ends with controversy. Uh, The chief priests and the elders are outraged uh, by Jesus' action. They uh, they know what he's doing when he comes up uh, mounted on a donkey like Solomon did on his coronation day. And when he overturns the the, uh, tables in the temple, and so they confront him in uh, chapter 21, verse 23, saying, by what authority are you doing this? Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, but in reality, this is the beginning of a full-scale showdown. This is like the feds arriving and kind of flashing their badges. Uh, This is the beginning of the end, really, of Jesus' life as a free man. Just a few days to go now uh, before we uh, reach the cross. For our purposes today, though, we need to see uh, that uh, Jesus answers the chief priests and the elders' questions with three parables. You've got to like his chutzpah here. Uh, I don't know how you would have reacted in a situation like this, uh, but Jesus sees it as an opportunity to teach these guys, and his message is kind of combative. The chief priests and the elders come out to confront him and show him the error of his ways, but Jesus confronts them. And he shows them the error of their ways, to the point where they end up uh, disappearing with their tails between their legs, uh, kind of licking their wounds and trying to figure out another way to shut him down. So we have these three parables here, starting at chapter 21, verse 28. You might want to follow along with them as we just review. The striking thing about each one is that they're remarkably similar. Each one of them presents a contrast between two groups of people. First, we've got this contrast between two sons, haven't we? And next, we have a contrast between two groups of tenants on a farm. Uh, And then finally, we have a contrast between two groups of people invited to a wedding banquet. And in each case, those two groups of people that Jesus is referring to uh, are exactly the same. In all three parables, the first group of people are the Jewish leaders and the whole history of rebellious Israel, self-sufficient Israel that they stand for. So like the first son in Jesus' opening parable, the leaders, but also the people of Israel, said yes to God at first, but then they failed to work with him when the harvest came and when the kingdom was unveiled, when Jesus actually came. Then like the first group of tenants in the next parable, the leaders and the people of Israel rose up against God, Uh, Even though they owed God their very existence and they set themselves against God's son when he came. And then in our parable, uh, the leaders and the people of Israel are like these wedding guests who are invited first. Uh, They're the ones who hear about the coming of the kingdom when it's first announced. Uh, These are the ones who have seen in their own history how serious God is about bringing all these plans for this kingdom to fulfilment. And yet when the son Uh, Sorry, and yet like the son in the first parable, like the tenants in the second, when the moment comes for them to act on all these privileges, they blow it. They're not interested. Can you imagine Jesus standing in front of these chief priests and teachers of the law and saying that to their faces? Must have been a pretty intense moment, don't you think? But the flip side of these parables is maybe even more intense. In the first parable, the son who enters the kingdom uh, is the one who begins by saying no. And it wouldn't have taken a genius to work out uh, who that second son represented uh, in this context because the answer had followed Jesus all the way into Jerusalem. The unclean and the tarnished, the tax collectors and the sinners who'd been trailing him all the way up from Jericho. These are the guys that Jesus says are entering the kingdom ahead of these leaders and Pharisees and so on. In the parable of the tenants, Jesus says the same thing. The landowner is about to rent out the land to new tenants who will give him a share of the crops at harvest time. You can just picture the chief priests and the elders kind of holding their noses, averting their gazes from Jesus' wretched band of followers. But Jesus tells them that they are the wretches and that God is going to bring them to a wretched end while those that they're judging enter in ahead of them. And in our parable, that contrast is just the same. Once the first group of guests have ruled themselves out, the king says to his servants, Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find, the bad as well as the good. So you can see how these three parables together must have offended the people that Jesus was dealing with here, right? But let's focus in now on the final parable in the set. There are two points in our story, uh, in this story, this final parable, where uh, people are invited to to the wedding banquet and fail to enter. And I'm going to have us look at those more closely now because in each case, I think Jesus highlights an obstacle that hinders us as we try and really live under this kind of cross-shaped resume that Rod laid out for us a couple of weeks ago. So look with me again at the first part of this parable. Why is it that the group of guests who are invited first refuse to come? It's not immediately obvious, is it? Free food? Lavish party party all provided by a a great king. Sounds like too good an offer to pass on, you would think. But I think the reason does become clear uh, when we think about Jesus' intended application. The guests invited first, uh, like the first group of people in all three of these parables, were the Jewish leaders and the whole history of rebellious, self-sufficient Israel that they stand for. And what did this wedding invite look like? When it came to them in reality, what is it that Jesus is referring to? Well, it looked like the whole Old Testament part of our Bibles, didn't it? That was the invite that the Jewish people received. The Old Testament taught the people of Israel that men and women had lost their special relationship with God, that they tried to become God themselves, but God had a plan to buy it all back. God was planning to send a saviour his own son, no less, to undo all the evil effects of the fall and bring his people back to himself. That's the gospel. And the Old Testament presents it uh, as a journey towards a wedding. In Exodus 19, God lays out his promises as a, a marriage vow. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, he says. God invites Israel not just to be the guest, but to be the bride in the end. But what happened? Well, the short answer is that Israel was in for a long wait. God prefigured this beautiful wedding day in the story of the Exodus, but it turned out it was only a picture of what God had in mind for the future. Uh, God prefigured this beautiful wedding day in the whole story of the kings, but again it was only a picture of what God had in mind for the future. And as the years drifted past, the people started wondering whether there would really be a wedding banquet at all. Despite all the ways that God showed he was serious about his promises, his people started putting their confidence in themselves for their own future. They started looking for a solution to their problems that made sense to them. They wanted a political solution. They wanted a realistic solution. And they stopped believing in God's plan to do something far more radical. In fact, they stopped believing it so completely that when it actually happened, when Jesus actually came, when all the promises came true, they couldn't accept it. And that's the reason why they refused the invitation. Jesus tells us that when the message calling the guests to the feast went out, the people who'd been invited first paid no attention because they were engrossed in their own plans and prospects for the future, their fields and their businesses. Sound familiar? That's the first thread I want to pull out of this passage to apply to us. If we find ourselves refusing this invite, if we find ourselves living as strangers to this resume, if we're lured back again and again into the into lifestyles that are just a bit more realistic than all of this hope that's laid up in the Bible, based on what we can do and what our qualifications can achieve, or based on what we can't do and all the ways that we feel trapped, We need to just be open to the possibility that we're heading down the same path that these Jewish leaders did. We need to ask ourselves if we've actually stopped believing all the unrealistic things that God has promised, believing that they will actually one day happen. Because if that's our situation, depressing as that might seem, this passage has got help for us. You see, there are plenty of convincing voices around us right now telling us that we are crazy to put our hope in a message as odd as the message of Jesus. Putting our hope in human achievements, or perhaps better, just trying not to hope for too much at all, seems like a far more sensible route, doesn't it, sometimes, than shackling our lives to this out-of-date, pie-in-the-sky expectation that Jesus is going to return and bring some cosmic renewal of some perfect created order that most people don't even believe ever existed. But what I'm sure Jesus would want us to see in this text is that however unlikely that stuff sounds now, and it does, it sounded far more unlikely when the invite first went out. Think about it. Imagine for a minute what it would have been like to be Abraham. A God about whom you know next to nothing calls you out of your homeland and away from the gods of your family and everything that seems realistic to you and sends you off to Canaan telling you that he's going to restore Eden and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Does that sound like the kind of proposal that the naysayers in our society or inside our own heads would accept as reasonable today? Hardly, like, you crazy. Imagine for a minute what it would have been like to be Isaiah. The Assyrian army has just annihilated the entire northern kingdom of Israel. Now it's marching south, capturing and burning every village on its way to Jerusalem. In the palace, your king has uh, been seeking every kind of foreign alliance possible to head these guys off with no joy. And... uh, In the meantime, it's been revealed to you that uh, uh, only a small number of people are going to survive this, and they are then going to be dragged off into exile by the most powerful and culturally dominant empire the world has ever seen. And in that situation, you are called by God to prophesy not only that Judah will survive, not only that Judah will return to her native land but the one day Judah will produce a king before whom all the kings of the nations will bow and through whom salvation will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Does that sound like the kind of proposal that the naysayers in our society or inside our own heads would accept as reasonable today? I don't think so. But the point of this passage is that those things happened. The wait was long, but it was not indefinite. The hope was utterly unrealistic to human judgment. But God is not limited by human judgment. And so the difficulty for us is not as hard as we think, if we can just see it in proper perspective. The promises that we're called to believe in are unbelievable. That's true. But history stands as a witness to the fact that they've already begun to come true. The challenge for us is simply to believe now that God will finish what he started Jesus will stand on the earth again one day. And if we can hold that truth before our eyes more consistently, we'll overcome this first inhibitor uh, to cross-shaped living, this uh, problem that we have of just struggling to believe that it's actually real. Okay, that's the first one. But as I said at the start, there are two threads we want to pull out of this parable before we move on. So let's uh, get into this next one. You see, the guests uh, invited first are not the only people who are excluded from the banquet, are they? Uh, Once their replacements arrive, we get this shocking twist in the tale right at the end. One of them is discovered without wedding clothes, and he gets thrown out. Now, to understand that part of the story properly, uh, we need a bit of background information uh, that Jesus was able just to assume uh, for his audience because they were all living in this culture and they knew it intimately, when we think about wedding clothes, we think about tuxedos and party frocks and all that kind of stuff don 't we right and so it strikes us as unfair uh, that the uh, the host holds this guest 's feet to the fire uh, for um, uh, not turning up with the right thing to wear if he 's just been yanked off the streets you know he 's been drawn from among the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Uh, it seems unreasonable that he should be expected to show up in this kind of finery doesn 't it? Hmm. but we 've got to be careful here. first of all, that line the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame that actually isn 't in matthew 's version of the story, is it okay that 's in luke 's version, uh, and Luke tells this story with different priorities. All Matthew tells us about these new guests is that the king 's servants went out into the streets and gathered all people all the people that they could find the bad as well as the good. <coughs> The second thing we need to remember as well is that uh, our assumption about tuxedos and party frocks just comes from our own culture, doesn't it? In Jesus's day, the customary dress for guests at a wedding banquet was nothing more complicated than just a one-piece long, clean white robe, a garment that every Jew, except those in the most abject need, uh, would have worn to the synagogue every Saturday. And so we already know, don't we, from the way that Matthew tells the story that the neediness of his guests isn't really his point here. Uh, So what we uh, get from that kind of background is the understanding Matthew wants to see just that these guests are undeserving. Um, But not that this guy wasn't capable of showing up in the right uh, dress. So how does that change the way we read it? Well, it tells us that the guest in this story who gets called out uh, has committed a grave breach of etiquette. Because the king sent out invitations to all and sundry, this guy assumed that attendance at the banquet didn't need to be treated as a special privilege. And I think that's how we naturally think, isn't it? You know, if one of us had got invited to the president's inauguration dinner at the White House this week, I'm sure we would have dressed up in our best clothes, right? In fact, I imagine we probably would have gone out and bought a new set of best clothes for the occasion. But if we were invited to a, an event with no apparent exclusivity, you know, if the, event just, the, uh, the invite just came as a flyer through every door in the street, well, I imagine we probably wouldn't make such an effort, right? And that's exactly what's happening here. The man interprets everyone invited to mean this event is no big deal. But he's wrong. Even though the doors are thrown wide open, this is still the wedding of the son of the king. The man treats the king and his son with contempt by showing up in his work clothes here. And he gets thrown out. And once again, I think this opens up one of the central reasons why we find it harder than it needs to be to live a cross-shaped life. Because we, we struggle to hold on to this two-part resume here because we so quickly forget what an honour it is to have been invited into God's kingdom in the first place. Every Sunday we hear the offer of the gospel held out to us because it's free, because there's nothing we can do, uh, because there's nothing that we need to do to earn it. Maybe in our hearts we start to treat that thing with contempt When we pray, we come hurrying into God's presence as if it's no big deal with our shopping list of complaints. When we go out to work, we forget that we've been called to be his ambassadors in the world, modelling holiness and kindness and mercy to others. When we get home, we forget that God's eye is on us and that the time that we've been given with our families has been given to us to serve them. We forget that at any moment, we might be called home to a place where goodness and purity reign. And we fail to grasp the fact that if we haven't developed a taste for those things in this life, we have no place there. We will not fit in. Striking, isn't it, the way that Jesus concludes the parable, for many are invited but few are chosen When I think of being chosen, I guess my mind just goes to this kind of cold and unresponsive place. You know, I've been chosen, and so there's nothing that anyone can do about it. You know, it doesn't matter how I live. That's not what Jesus says, is it? The thing that marks out those who are chosen from those who are merely invited is that they dress like they're going to a wedding. Every day they say to themselves, if I'm going to the wedding of the son of the king, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to live a life that looks like that's where I'm headed. And when they do that, their knives naturally reflect this resume that Matthew's gospel lays out for us here. So let's move on to our next thread now, uh, which is going to come from verses 15 to 22. Let me just read that section to you. You can follow along in your Bibles. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words, Matthew says. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So he said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. After the three parables that Jesus told, starting back in chapter 21, we read here that the Pharisees set out to trap Jesus in his words, so just as we had back in chapter 19, uh, you remember when Jesus was quizzed about divorce? We're heading now into, an, into a section where Jesus is being tested. Uh, the Pharisees don't ask their question about paying taxes to Caesar here because they honestly want the answer. Uh, they ask it because they're hoping they can get Jesus to incriminate himself. How? Well, once again, that requires just a bit of background information. Uh, At the time of Jesus, Jerusalem was part of a Roman province called Judea. And the Romans uh, let the Jewish aristocrats who uh, lived there and the priests handle most of the day-to-day kind of administration. But over them, they installed this Roman governor up in a palace in Caesarea who took charge of raising taxes and keeping the peace. Now, the poll tax that Matthew refers to here in uh, our chapter was the tax that the Romans imposed to cover the costs of that governor and his staff and his palace. So as you can imagine, it wasn't that popular. The poll tax was the money that the Jews paid for the privilege of being subjugated to the Romans. And that shows us why the, uh, the question that Jesus is asked here is so challenging. You see, if the Pharisees could get him to openly denounce the poll tax, they could take him straight up to Pontius Pilate and have him on a charge of sedition against the Roman state. But uh, if they could get him to openly support it, then they could uh, do him as a collaborator. So it's kind of like the you know, ultimate catch-22. What on earth is Jesus going to say? But the problem, of course, we're trying to trap Jesus in words uh, is that under that humble exterior was the mind that created the universe and that could see right through their motives. The Pharisees were expecting to catch Jesus out here, weren't they? But instead, Jesus turns the tables on them spectacularly. And in the process, he opens up this third reason why I think we often fail to live this cross-shaped life. Jesus asked the Pharisees to show him the coin that was used to pay the Roman poll tax. And then looking at it, he challenges them, saying whose image is this and, and whose inscription. Now, one of the fun things about Coins is that we still have them. So, this is the actual thing that Jesus held in his hands here. The image, of course, is Caesar. This is a denarius, uh, the Roman coin of the time with Tiberius Caesar's face stamped on it. And the inscription reads Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, Divi Augusti Filius, which means Augustus, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And seeing it, Jesus gives this brilliant response. He says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. What does he mean? Well, think about it for a minute. If give back to Caesar what is Caesar's means give back to Caesar the thing that bears Caesar's image, what does Jesus have in mind when he says give back to God what is God's? That's right. He means give back to God the thing that bears God's image your own life. In Genesis 1, we read that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And that's what Jesus has got in mind here. Jesus sees straight through the Pharisees' vision of what's important in God's sight. You see, to them, politics had become the dominant issue. The indignity of the Roman occupation had become more important to them than the indignity of their own sin. The problem of being ruled by someone who thought he was God had become more important to them than the problems that the real God lays out in his word. And their question revealed all of that. They thought they were going to expose Jesus, didn't they? But in the end, they just ended up exposing themselves horribly. Jesus is as if he says to them, look, before you worry too much about what you should or shouldn't give to Caesar, You better make sure that your life is laid down before the ultimate Caesar, the king of kings. And exactly the same advice applies to us. As Christians, we find it so easy to let our hearts be claimed by peripheral issues, don't we? Whether it's low taxation or individual freedom or social justice or environmental protection, however good or important those things might be or might not be, we so easily get to the place where they dominate our thoughts and our conversation as if they were the whole of what we were about. And then we wonder why we struggle to live cross-shaped lives that are marked by an awareness of how little we deserve and how much God has loved us by calling us his children. If we took Jesus' advice here and realized that God doesn't care half so much as we do, about the indignities we feel we're being exposed to by our politicians, as he does about whether or not we will lay our lives down before him, I think that would change. If I set myself each day to give God what is God's my whole life, if I set myself to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly before him, I think I would have a much clearer and much more enduring grasp on how little Uh, I'm owed and how much I've been given as the the resume that we've been working with says. Okay, so now we come to the fourth and final thread in our text. Uh, The fourth thing that I think holds us back from uh, living uh, in the light of all that Jesus achieved for us on the cross. And it's a challenging one. Uh, For brevity, I won't read it. Uh, Suffice to say, we've got another situation here where Jesus is being tested by his opponents. This time it's the Sadducees who come with their pet question. They want Jesus to adjudicate on the issue of whether there really is or whether there really isn't life after death. You might remember we looked at this one briefly a few weeks ago when we were back in that passage on divorce in Matthew 19. The Sadducees, who were the priestly caste of the day, uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, uh, these guys accepted only the first five books of the Bible as their kind of uh, rock of authority uh, and they differed sharply from the Pharisees on this question of whether God's people had any kind of resurrection to look forward to after they died. Uh, and in this text, we get a bit of a glimpse into their strategy. Uh, it seems that the Sadducees a, had a kind of standard scenario that they would roll out uh, to prove their point. A scenario that they uh, thought made the idea of the resurrection just look ridiculous. The Sadducees asked their opponents what would happen in the case of a woman who had been married seven times and marrying the brothers of her deceased husbands successively until none of them were left in strict accordance with the law of Moses. She's been married seven times, said the Sadducees, in strict accordance with the law of Moses. And so there can't be a resurrection uh, because in heaven she can't be the wife of all seven brothers at the same time. Na, 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 na. <laughs> Do you get it? Perhaps it seems persuasive to some of us too. But to Jesus, this is just another example of the kind of stuff that holds us back from really living in the light of the cross. The Sadducees are expecting him to say, hey, you know what, I never thought of that. <laughs> That's a good point, maybe there isn't a resurrection, like back to the drawing board, Up to, back up to Nazareth, lads. let's start again. But, but actually he says this, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. How is it that they didn't know the scriptures? I mean, these guys are the experts. But Jesus quotes from the very books of the Bible that they believed were authoritative. Uh, in Exodus, uh, Jesus tells them God reveals himself to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Note the present tense there. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived 500 years before Moses. And yet, God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To God, these men still exist. We just found that out when we read about the transfiguration, didn't we? Then what about our clever scenario, say the Sadducees. What about the lady and the husbands? Like, come on. But this is the point where I think we need to pay close attention. You see, Jesus says to them, "You you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You've stopped living with an awareness of the fact that God transcends you. And that he can do things that you can't understand. Jesus said to them, at the resurrection of the dead, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, can we comprehend that answer fully? Nope. Can we visualize it? I don't think so. And that's exactly Jesus' point. Faith in the Bible is not irrational, but it does require a rational realization of our own limitations. If God is who the Bible says he is, if he is the maker and sustainer of time and space, if he is the origin of all goodness and truth, he dwarfs us. Our interaction with him is like the interaction between a stick insect and a human being. He knows more than we will ever know, he sees more than we will ever see, and when things seem impossible to us, more often than not, that's our problem, not his. In this issue of marriage and the resurrection, we simply have to trust that God knows what he's doing and that whatever he has planned, it will be perfect and far better for us and for our partners and for our children than anything we've ever known in this world. But that realisation goes further than just this question about marriage, doesn't it? Limiting God, shackling him with our man-sized constraints is something that we are all prone to. And like the three previous threads that we've looked at in this chapter, this one too can stop us living a cross-shaped life. If we could just accept that what seems natural to us might not be the measure of ultimate truth, if we could just get over ourselves for long enough to believe that God's verdict on our lives is more real and more important than ours, if we could just give God the space to be working in ways that we cannot see and that we wouldn't choose, in order to achieve things that we can't conceive of, of course we would live in the realisation that we're greater debtors than we could ever imagine and that we're more loved than we could ever dream because God tells us it's true. So that's what we've got today. And as we finish, I want for us just to be able to spend a bit of time with those four threads that we've pulled out here. In my mind's eye, I um, am kind of a... in the notes I wrote for this sermon, I titled it, Four Ways to Fail Less Often in My Battle to Live a Cross-Shaped Life. And that's my prayer for me coming out of this, and I wonder whether you might make that your prayer too. This side of heaven, it will always be a battle to live without resume Rod laid out for us. But I don't want to make it any harder for myself than it needs to be. And I guess none of us do, right? And so this is my prayer, and we'll get these things up on the screen here so that we can think on them as we sit in silence in a minute my prayer is that I would remember daily that the invitation Jesus makes to me in the gospel is real his promises are true he will stand on the earth again one day second um, I'm praying that I would live like someone who just expects to be sitting at that wedding banquet in the company of the king of kings one day and that my life now would look like I'm on the guest list. You know that when I get there, I wouldn't just completely be, uh, lo- you know, looking like I uh, have no per- place there. Greg and I were chatting about this in my office this week, and um, I was just likening this to the situation with my little boy Sam. Uh, you know, if he knew that he was going to be an engine driver one day, which is his dearest wish, um, uh, when he's building with his Duplo in the living room, he's making trains. Okay. Those things do not go. They're not CSX. They don't pull one ton of freight for 500,000 miles or whatever they do. But the issue is, in his little way, he is articulating a passion for that thing that he set his heart on, even if it's totally inadequate to the thing ultimately. Now, is my life like that? I know that when heaven comes, the efforts that I make to live a godly life, to look like I really belong there, will just be dwarfed and made to look like Duplo by what it really is. But my heart's desire is that my life now at least might be that Duplo making. I'm determined that I want to be there. Third thing, I'm praying that I would put a higher value on giving my whole life back to God uh, than I put on any other distraction. That's the thing about living Uh, in an awareness of the fact that God wants me to give to him what has his image on it my whole life and that I wouldn't allow myself to just get yanked around by distractions. And then the fourth thing, that I would not place man-sized limits on what I think God can do. So let's pray and uh, then we'll take some time in silence to consider these things, pray them into our own hearts. Lord Jesus, um, thank you so much that you have just provided us with this text, which is so practical, almost uncomfortably practical. Um, Lord God, as we've gone along through this journey in Matthew, there have been many times where I guess in my heart I've just been crying out to you, how, Jesus, how, how? Um, But here it is. Um, Here is a whole bunch of how. And... We would just lay our lives down at your feet for each one of us who feels that, uh, has that experience of being pricked on a Sunday, feeling convicted that these are things that we really want to be living. We want to be living with the cross, just hanging over our lives, but failing to do it. God, I pray that you would help us just to look over these things and say, how much of these are just really part of my life? How am I making it harder for myself than it really needs to be? And where that's true, God, give us grace to go to work, to rip this stuff out, to put this stuff to death so that you might be honoured in our lives and that you might see more fruit in us, that you might see uh, more of that uh, image of your son uh, which you have uh, impressed on us at the start and which you have given so much and loved for so long to recover. In Jesus' name, amen.